Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Speak to people like you speak to your friends and family, not informal, weird corporate speak. I don't know what this the corporate language is, the way people talk. So bizarre. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to discuss messaging change and why we do that and how we do that and what it all means. And with that said, let's get on with the show. We are going to start today's episode as we start all episodes and all meetings and all of the very best dinner parties with a check-in round. (laughs) And our check-in round question today is a current favorite of mine. What is something about which you are currently feeling conflicted? That's a deep one. Uh, I have to say that for me right now, it's all about food. There are things that I love to eat. There are things that I just really want. And... I want to be able to climb up the wall higher and faster uh, in my in my hobby of indoor rock climbing. And those two things are staring at each other right now, being like, you can't have both of us. You must choose. Wow. That's, that's intense. It's intense that your food <laughs> and your feelings are in a face-off. For me, today is the end of a project, and I have never loved and hated this group of people more than I do today. Uh, I mm-hmm. am holding such strong feelings of resignation, of disappointment, of liberation, of um, actually like a lot of sentiment and a lot of heartwarming and a lot of sweetness with just like, fuck it all. Uh, <laughs> that is just how it is like the, the, the duality of my heart and mind today is in full, full force. It's graduation day. It is graduation day. And I love them and I also am ready to leave them. And that is our check-in round question. Let's awesome. get on right. with the show. Yeah. So uh, you were talking with someone recently about messaging change and how communication is such a big part of change, it seems, in, in most of the organizations that we pop in and out of. Um, say more about what you're thinking. What I'm thinking about is why change management or big moments of change in systems have become so much about the exact words that we use and the exact email that we write and making sure that every stakeholder's perspective is taken into account because we want, we think that by doing that, we can actually control the way in which messaging will be received. And like somehow the perfect cascaded, let's talk about that word later, which is an actual trigger <laughs> word for me at this point. The perfect cascaded set of messages can somehow like exist in a vacuum separate from the reality that everybody is 
living in all day long. And I just find the amount of effort put into that particular part of change fascinating and confusing. And I want to talk about it. (laughs) I've definitely seen it too. Um, And I would say at some level, well, look, here's what I think is actually driving it. So for most people in most change processes, the reality is that a few people are going to actually make the decision, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like the CEO or the C-suite or the consultant or somebody's drawing the org chart and it's like, this is done. This is happening. (laughs) But then there's, and and that's how it works. But then there's another part of us. There's a part of those same people's psyche that knows deep down that that's wrong. That it's sort of like, it's not right to do that. And so what we do is we're like, okay, we're doing a thing. We know we're going to do it this way, but we know it's kind of wrong. So now what can we do to make it better? And so we want to explain it away. We want to like use words to paper over the, the inadequacy of this approach and, and to sort of control the outcome where we're like, well, obviously the outcome is going to be bad. It's going to be shit. So we have to, we have to like sand the edges. And the way we'll do that is by communicating just right. And if we say just the right things in just the right order to just the right people, we will be able to manipulate them all into being okay with this thing that we're doing to them. Yeah. Totally. That's exactly that's exactly right. So one of the conversations that sparked this is that I have a very dear friend who's also a client who got fired yesterday from the company that he founded and sold to a much larger company. And the people who came from the mothership to deliver that news and meet with his leadership team um, spent the entire meeting talking to his leadership team about how to message Yes, his departure and this change so that it would be accepted by the organization, which is predicated on A, the idea that the organization is going to accept it, B, the idea that the people in that room had accepted it, and C, that there's anything you can say when a beloved leader disappears in the night that's going to make people go like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. I'm glad that happened. the parallel would be like assuming you're in a family where a family member leaves without notice in the night. And then the next day, the parents are like, okay, how are we going to message this to the kids? <laughs> like this, you know, their sibling is gone, right? but we'll just have to message it just right. And then it'll be all okay. And importantly, let's message it so that it seems like this is actually better. Right. Let's like, be this like, is what we want, you know, Bob disappeared that I, we understand why that could be concerning to you. But we're all moving to Disney World, so get psyched. In- and that's supposed to just make us n- like not notice that a member of our family has gone. It is interesting that it's almost verboten in corporate culture to message something negative. Uh, why, to, though? Right? Like, to just be like, this sucks or something bad happened. And that's the mess. That's the whole message. That's like, it. We just, we failed. Something didn't work. Someone left. Yeah. Shit. Right. We can't say that. We it's completely not allowed. We have to put on a happy face. Why is that? Um, I, like we all know. Like <laughs> spoiler alert, everyone knows it sucks right now. Well, it's like so many things. I think it just ties back to the two kind of evil forces that are that are disrupting so much of of organizational development. One is our desire, our deep desire for control, mm-hmm. which is like we want to we want to believe that we can just make the thing do what we want it to do. And then the other part is the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. That like, like somehow if we admit that something didn't go the way we want it to go, then not only are we a failure, which really hurts at an identity level, but it also means that we get the bonus bingo of that also means we're not in control. 
Right. So like, <laughs> it's just like connected. doubly threatening. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's I, what that brings up for me is the necessary and current connection between failure and negativity. Right. Because it does feel like me to me, like we could say in so many instances, like statement of fact, here's what happened and feel however you feel about it. A lot of you are not going to like it. And that that does not necessarily an indication of failure. It's like right. people leave companies, people get fired. Sometimes we sell off part of our business. Sometimes we shut down part of the factory floor. We These are things evolving. Happen. That sucks for the people who lost their jobs and for the people who loved those people and for the people who have to take on all their extra work. That sucks. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have failed in some profound way. And the fact that those things are seemingly always partnered, I think is a mistake. Well, it goes back to what I'm always talking about in in the book, Brave New Work, about complicated versus complex. Because if you think the organization and the market is a complicated system like a watch, then if something breaks, it is broke, like it is fucked. Yeah. Like the watch, right. if the sprocket's broken, the watch is broken. Right. But if you think about it like a complex system and you're like, oh, this plant didn't do well in the garden, so we popped it out and now we have room to put something else in, is that a failure of the garden? Or are you just like playing the game, right? You're just like right. letting it unfold. And so, and maybe something so much better will come as a result, right? Right. Like it's, you, you don't, I guess the point is, it's this is sort of like a Buddhist observation, but you don't know if the thing is good or bad until later, right? It's exactly. all maybe. And you don't know if it's good or bad until later. And either way, grief is an appropriate response to change. <laughs> right. And allowing mourning because a thing, even a thing we didn't like, just a thing that was is over. And for some people, that's going to create sadness or angst or frustration or whatevs. There is a place in a system to 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 let that be uh, yeah, in the yeah. interim time but it's it's it maybe this is also part of my beef with the communication thing is there's no spaciousness in no that. space for that it's yeah. like a complicated solution that's a not a very good solution usually because what i usually Party see line. happen sorry to go on a tangent is like here, I, I'm the HR person, so I'm going to make a draft. Then I'm going to send it to like 16 stakeholders who are going to edit it down until it says literally nothing. Then we're right. going to send it to That's the conference who's like, what if this got out? Which is hilarious because it doesn't say anything anyway. <laughs> and then, you know, some figurehead who probably doesn't even read it is going to send it to the whole company. People are going to pass it around trying to interpret and decipher what it actually says, which is, again, nothing. And then we're like, okay, so we've communicated. Let's all move on from this unpleasantness. And if there was just a little bit of space and time uh, spent instead of on like V6.7 of that email communication and instead on just processing like, how are we feeling about this? What are we seeing? What are we sensing? What are the patterns? What are our hopes? Whatever. I don't know. Uh, what might that do for us? But in that way, it is the easy way out, right? Like when you look at, all right, well, only a few of us get to make the decision. So that job can't be spread out in the old model. Um, so then what's left for us all to do with this with this change, with this disruption? Well, one really easy thing to do that's almost completely non-emotional and completely non-vulnerable is let's just argue about the messaging, right? We can just, <laughs> just all like mess with the press around. release. <laughs> right, let's just play with the press release until it says that we're, you know, actualizing our, you know, longitudinal strategy in order to have concordance with We're the, aligning our of the planets and stars. Yeah. 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 And, and like that, that's really, that is emotionally easy work. 
Yeah. Right. As opposed to being like, let's just sit in the uncertainty of what's happening or what's changed. That's hard work. And that seems like, mm, I don't have any space for that. So if somebody wanted to do it in a way that was people positive and complexity conscious and pick any big event, you're acquiring a company, you're firing an executive, you're, I don't know, changing a very significant policy, whatever it is, what, what would you do? What would you, what would you invite people to do differently than what they do now? Well, it seems like there's, there's two lanes here. So the first one is, are we allowed to change how we make the decision? Because if we can do that, then it's going to change the way we communicate because we're going to have more people involved sooner. Yes. And can I just say on that point, if we are going to change the way, one of the things that I love about the fact that you went there first is because right now I so often see people in this in-between where it's like, as you originally narrated, it really is a decision made by one person or a small group of people. But then there's the theatrics of being like, right. let's ask a bunch of questions and get <laughs> input. And it's like, you're not getting input. You've already decided. You're just right. managing you're people. And that feels so dirty, both to the people who are being managed and to the people who are asking questions. So just stop doing that altogether. Anyway, back to what if we made decisions in a different way? Yeah, the, I just think that that whole point about the theater of input, you know, it just can be replaced by just having clarity about, all right, first of all, who gets to make this decision? Mm-hmm. And is that something that we're all sort of bought into at a consent level? So even, you know, not, you know, if we're going to make a decision about getting rid of a leader or merging with a company, a thousand people are not going to make that at one time. But um, a thousand people could decide how a decision like that should be made. Mm-hmm. And once they've done that, they've already got a say, they've already got a consent into, all right, well, the way that's going to be made is, you know, the board of directors is going to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Okay? And they're going to make it with advice from these stakeholders. Okay. And then when that's going on, instead of hiding it, we can be in, in very transparent ways talking about what's happening. Like we're right now, the board is considering whether this leader is the right leader for the company. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're considering it through these avenues and we're seeking advice from these players and, you know, and if maybe we are open for input or we're not or whatever, but here's what's happening. So now we're already, we're already in the reality together rather than having to control the spin after the fact. And then once the decision is made, then you go into the second lane or the second phase of this, which is how will we now live through the decision? So let's say we did decide to get rid of a leader that has held an important relational role in the system. And that was the decision that was made through a model that we all consented to. Now, just what do we have to do to kind of go through that rite of passage or to go through that? You know, sometimes it's grieving and sometimes it's just noticing and Mm -hmm. just like, you know, being with being with what's actually going on and and maybe honoring or recognizing or or what have you. I think sometimes the thing I get frustrated about and, and I sort of live in both worlds simultaneously is there's a there's a field of our, you know, study that sort of thinks about change as like, yeah, it's grief and it's, you have to, you know, like write a letter to it and burn it. And like, you have to do all this stuff. that's very, very deeply emotional about letting go. And then there's another part of our, of our field. That's like change isn't hard. Change doesn't have to be disruptive. Like you can just, you can just continually step into the future. And I feel like those things tug on each other a little bit. And so, and so where I always sit is like, yeah, if there's a reason to grieve, grieve. If there's a reason to just notice or honor, notice and honor. If there's a reason to just have a conversation, like make space for whatever needs to fill the space. Yeah. And and then allow that to happen. Yeah. And I think to your, to your point on grief and, and it's a good one. 
what I notice particularly around um, large scale restructurings or firings or things like that is that the initial reaction is often and sometimes just a noticing of like, well, he seemed unhappy or like not a fit or like that thing anyway. <laughs> and sense. then the way that the person is treated once they're gone is so inhumane that that is where the grief comes. Because people are like, well, right. hey, wait, wait a second. Like this person was here for 10 years. They did good work. And also we did care about them. Let's now not like scapegoat, use them as a scapegoat or drag them through the mud or blame all of our problems on them or whatever now that they're here. And like some of the, some of the, darker feels come from like the injustice and the mourning of someone's reputation when the action the itself would have actually been a okay. Cause people would have been like, well, yeah, it makes sense. He was miserable. But again, it goes, gone. it goes back to the, it goes back to the failure thing, right? Because right. if they're gone and they did good work, then did we then lose what them? did we do? And like, are we broken or are we wrong? And so the only way to justify that is to go back and rewrite history and be like, you know, that guy kind of was an asshole. Yeah, and he kind of, you know, he did this uh, and he did that, and now like now it feels better that he's gone because now we have a reason for him to be gone. That's positive for us. I hate instead that. Of positive for him. I know. Me too. It's gross. and I do it. Everybody I stop do. doing like, that. You too stop. I know, but it gets in your head, right? You like, you start to revision. Well, it's like any relationship, right? Like you I, you look <laughs> back on any relationship that no longer exists. And you're like, well, that person was a piece of shit. I'm the hero in this story, like all the stories. Obviously. <laughs> and like, here are all of the attributes about that person that that uh, justify their yeah. removal from my life. Um, it's so convenient, but it's so lazy. So here's my argument for messaging change. Great. Uh, have systems where you automatically and regularly, transparently communicate about what's changing. So whether that be the creation of roles or policies or agreements or what have you, um, you know, have forums where you share things. But just in general, I think, let's not message big, significant, disruptive change with written words and with pre-recorded videos. Let's just do it in dialogue. Agreed. Like what if we just talked about it in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. And let's not wait for a big reveal ever. Let's talk right. about it along the way. And for all my homies who are listening to this right now and saying things like classified or sensitive information or hearing regulatory bells and whistles in your head, let me tell you a little story about a guy named Gene, who was one of the best execs that I worked with when I worked in investment banking. And I went through the process of selling off a business with him. He was the head of the business that was being sold. And he did a weekly in-person Ask Me Anything and his three answers to every question were, I don't know, I know and here's the information, or I know but I can't tell you. People were totally understanding of that. Nobody ever walked out of one of those meetings and said, I don't know why he's lying to us or why I can't tell. People understand what sensitive, sensitive and classified information is, particularly right. around transactions. It was the smoothest large-scale transaction I have ever been through. And it's because he just sat there for an hour and said, I know, I don't know, or I know and I can't tell you. Not that hard, really. But nobody <laughs> yeah. does it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's, again, like, it's really hard to say, I don't know. It's really hard to say, I, I know and I can't tell you, and then feel that, you know, that pressure and that privilege. I mean, it's, those are emotional things to say out loud. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. So for this episode's guest, I'm actually thinking of Deirdre Latour, 
who I originally met at GE, but is now at Pearson. And she is the most candid and experienced communicator I've ever met. So uh, when we're back after the break, we'll be joined by Deirdre. Great, I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Ready, set, go. everybody. We are back with Deirdre Latour, the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pearson, and my good friend, although we've been uh, we've missed touch with each other for a little while. Deirdre, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So tell uh, our listeners a teeny bit about Pearson, which they're probably aware of, but maybe you know you can say a little bit more about what the company's up to these days, and then your role there. What does it mean to be a Chief Corporate Affairs Officer? Uh, a chief corporate affairs officer is a place where they dump a bunch of stuff in, a different <laughs> to, in addition to communications that may be risky reputation-wise or tough to do. <laughs> so <laughs> it has government relations, investor relations, sustainability, social effects, things like that. Pearson is a British company, but it's the world's learning company. And I spent 14 years at GE and thought this was such a great change for me mm. because it's a super, super mission-driven company mm. that our, our purpose is to help people progress in their lives through learning. So um, I just loved the mission. So here I am. Nice. That's awesome. So let's dive right in because you are our resident communications expert and we have lots of things we want to learn from you. The first one is just a general, how do you think about communicating news when there is a big organizational change? And specifically, what is the difference in how you think about that for external audiences versus internally? Yeah, so it's um, so I am a, my leaning is towards radical transparency. That is uh-huh. what I aspire to. The tough thing about these jobs is, and I mentioned I was at GE for a long time, is that companies are made up of people. <laughs> so, so <laughs> Those darn people again. Yeah. I mean, really, if we didn't have to people, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of emotions and personal agendas that drive decisions mm-hmm. in internal, especially org announcements, especially org announcements. And by personal agendas, I don't mean necessarily they're bad agendas, but they, everyone, both of you, I, we all have our own agendas for our career, good, bad, or different. Um, so I think it's, um, it's so much harder to do than people realize. And I always, I always am weary of criticizing companies when it seems like they did it bad. Like why didn't they just do X? Mm. Because I've been in the worst possible situations. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've lived the hardest situations where, there's so much input. The fear of legal in companies is a killer. It's a killer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things, HR, legal, finance, all these people sort of go into the melting pot of what should we communicate when? And often what you get out of that is junk. Right. <laughs> right. Because every, by the time everybody gives their input on what shouldn't be in there, what are you left with, Right. Yeah, what are you left with? And what you're left with often is peop- is is not authentic, right? right? It's not just like, and I think you guys talked about this. It's it's not just 
okay, you know, Deirdre's leaving the company because it was her time to go. She had been here for 14 years. It it turns into this mishmash of like, people then have to guess, did she get fired? Did she, you know, did something happen? Uh, Did they just not, was she not doing a good job? Was she, you know, and people are smart. People are smart. You know, we underestimate people all the time and don't treat people like adults. Absolutely. So what have you learned then, given how many years you've been up to this and how intense some of these situations have been, what have you learned about how to work around that? I mean, one of the things that I think we can do as leaders is however, whatever kind of team you have, whether you have two people or a hundred people or 600 people or whatever, is to operate your team that way. So mm-hmm. I had to do a an unexpected restructuring. I, I've only been at Pearson since January. I had a budget surprise that I had no idea was going to happen. I had to do a restructuring, didn't intend on it. And I sat the whole team down, it was about 140 people and said, we had a budget surprise. I'm really upset. And I have to do a restructuring that I had no intention of doing. Mm-hmm. So I just told them, and of course it's awful because it's people's lives, but like the reception to it was like, thank you for treating us like we're adults. Right. Right. So I think one thing you do is you just do it within your own team. When you're running communications at a company, um, all you can do is fight the good fight in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have to be the one, there has to be a voice in the boardroom, hopefully more than one. Um, but there has to be one saying like, we just, we can't say that. Right. Like, this right. is not, um, and you have to be okay. Sometimes I would win the the fight and sometimes I would lose. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It sounds like you had, oh, you have had the role of not only owning the overall communication and strategy, but also being the coach and kind of the iconoclast in that room to say, let's disrupt this pattern that we know isn't working particularly well. Yes. And it's, uh, you know, and I did lose a lot. I did lose <laughs> a lot, you know, and, 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 you know, and that's okay. As long as I kind of feel like, you know, when I go home at night, can I look myself in the mirror and say, well, I put forth what I thought was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, when you do lose, then you have to do cleanup too. Like you're not only responsible for what what went down from a decision standpoint, but then the cleanup for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, so that's the tough part of the, that, that's why I have so much empathy for people in these jobs at companies when you see things go down that are very much head scratchers because you don't know <laughs> what they right. went into the CEO and said, like, dude, <laughs> like you can't, you just can't. Like this is, um, and you win and lose some, you know? So, and often I was the only woman in the room also. Right. So there's a lot of dynamics at play of just, sometimes it was great. And sometimes there was a little bit of like, isn't she cute? You know, she doesn't mm. sort of, she doesn't sort of get this. So frustrating. Given, uh, given that dynamic, can you, have you ever worked with a leader who was just like intuitively really good at this and was like a good partner and what made them, what made them good at like managing change communications with you? You know, I would actually say, interestingly, that my current CEO, John Fallon, who's British, is inherently able to to sort of be honest in a in a in a vulnerable way in a way that I haven't seen in the business setting before. Interesting. I I think it's partially because of the type of company we are, so it's a very different model of 
company. Um, you know, he jokes that he's from Manchester and they don't like to express their feelings like at all. Right. <laughs> but I think, I think it's just this like owning, it's very difficult for CEOs because you want to own and be vulnerable, the tough parts, but you also have to motivate people. Mm-hmm. So you can't be the guy. And I used to have this conversation with Jeff Immelt. Like he used to always say, I can't be the guy. And he would rub his eyes like he was crying. It goes out and be like, it's so bad. This is all of it. He's like, I can't, you know, you got to be the guy that's out and like, here's the path. We're mm-hmm. going to win. Here's how we're going to get there. I'm, so I'm curious the trick that. is the middle, the middle ground. Yeah, I'm curious about that balance because I feel like sometimes, you know, one of the one of the questions that we wanted to ask you was, why can't we ever just communicate bad news or just sit with discomfort as leaders in front of people? There is there does seem to be this implicit assumption that like we have to motivate. And I and I'm curious in your experience, you know, is that true? And if it is, how do you find that right balance between being vulnerable and honest and sitting with the truth and also being like a good kind of rah-rah leader? Yeah, I mean it's all about retention. It's all about retention, right? So as soon as you have a company in a crisis or in a tough situation or a team, the fear of people fleeing is so intense Mm. um, that they just inherit. And by the way, CEOs become CEOs because they are optimists. There is no such thing as a (laughs) pessimistic, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's no such thing. You've worked with enough of them, Aaron. There's no such thing as a pessimistic CEO, period, full stop. So it's, that is already a challenge. And then they do not want people to walk and they want people to do their job, like to perform. Right. Right. Um, I, I feel like there's a middle ground and the middle ground has to be, and this is so hard for CEOs, but the middle ground has to be, this sucks. Here's what went down and here's what we're doing now. Right. We're going to do, so if you're at Boeing, right, this is what went down. But now we're doing this, that, this, that, and that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you restate your values. Safety is absolutely paramount ahead of profit. Da, 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 right? And I feel like, don't you guys feel like if you do that, people are going to be like, I can stick with this guy. Yeah. For sure. Well, and I think the ca- the thing you're outlining that you said both in terms of how you've handled things in your own team and is coming through to me now again is just this notion that human beings can read the tea leaves because that's what we do all day long in any group setting. We are hardwired to do so. And so rather than painting an optimistic picture that might not be realistic, I think it's interesting to assume that if you're as transparent and as honest as possible and focus more on giving people good information and confidence that we have a plan for what we're going to do versus trying to spin things, they're not going to flee like rats off a ship. And I do hear that narrative a lot of like, if we're honest about this, everyone will leave. And I'm like, people also leave because they feel like they're being manipulated. So (laughs) I think it's interesting that you come at it from the perspective of let's just be as candid as possible. And also let's not paint a completely grim picture because presumably we are thinking about what's next and what we might do. And context, context, context. You have to give people context, over-communicate, and give them a lot of background, right? And there's always, you know, the legal, there's uh, SEC reasons why we can't say some things. There's legal reasons why we can't say some things. And so Mm -hmm. what we should say is, I can't tell you this because of SEC rules. Right. Like, just give them the context of why I'm not 
oversharing here or whatever. You know, sometimes you can't say I fired the guy because there, you know, there's reasons for that, right? There's HR reasons. So, uh, you know, you have to just give people as much context as you can. I mean, I think McDonald's just did a really good job with this and saying, you know, our CEO had an inappropriate relationship. It was Mm -hmm. was consensual, but it was against policy and he's leaving. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It's pretty, pretty plain. So one, one question I am curious about, given how remote the workforce has become, how global many of the companies that you've worked at are, um, have you noticed advantages or disadvantages, pros and cons with different forms of media when it comes to communicating change? So like the written word versus the video versus the webcast versus the in-person town hall versus the one-on-one, like what's the right alchemy and mix of those, of those channels? in this, in this world? Yeah. I mean, I think video live, ask me anything very informal seems to be the most effective. We have an internal channel at Pearson called Neo, which is good. And people participate. It's definitely a community, mm-hmm. but I think the ask me anything I'm finding more and more, even in a global setting, the ask me anything format of getting the CEO on with other leaders um, doing a little bit at the top on whatever the topic is, and then ask me anything and making it, you know, chat so that people don't have to use their voices. It, mm-hmm. It's also like people are shy. There's a lot of introverts out there, right? So the more you can give them opportunities to right. do it in a way that's that's comfortable for them, mm-hmm. that seems to me the best communication rather than just um, a written note. Got it. Yeah, we're big fans of Ask Me Anything. And I it's been interesting in a couple of organizations where we've experimented with this, also how it seems to be something that's very relaxing for the CEO because they understand going in that they're going to do that bit of context setting and framing at the top, but they don't have to go in having uh, sort of workshopped a statement to death and getting it exactly right and trying to anticipate all of the questions that people might have. And instead, they can just show up and know things because they know a lot of things. And um, it's just interesting to see how the dynamic changes just because the structure of the conversation has changed. Yes, that's right. And once you start seeing that people ask hard things and there's no repercussions, yeah. Then, then it starts to change, which I'm really working hard on, on on my team here. That starts to change the dynamic of how a team operates, right? And having a having a leader in the position where they can say, "I don't know the answer to that," and like that's that's a reasonable answer in complexity. That there are going to be moments where you have an opinion that's not yet fully formed, or someone on your team owns the information and you don't. Like those are lessons that I think we want anyone working inside of a company to be grokking, uh, not the lesson of if you show up to something, you have to know every single detail about every single thing in order to play. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. So uh, Deirdre, the last question that we ask every guest is usually about kind of getting practical. So if somebody is anticipating a big organizational change in their startup, in their you know massive end up, whoever's listening, um, what would you what would you sort of advise them if they sat down? And they were just like, "I'm about to go announce this big thing. Get, you know, give me like three things to just think about or feel good about before I before I jump in." What would what would kind of be your parting words of wisdom? I mean, I would say vulnerability to sort of get into the Brene Brown world here, but 
vulnerability in business is so important and so hard for people to do, right? Mm -hmm. To show. So I would say vulnerability, speak to people like you speak to your friends and family, not informal, Mm -hmm. weird corporate speak that is, um, that people can see right through. (laughs) Um, and just be honest with people on and it. Like you said, if you don't know something, say, I don't know. Or if you can't say something mm-hmm. for some reason, mm-hmm. for disclosure reasons or whatever, which is a very valid thing in a public company, totally. Um, then just say, you know, that is a, it's a disclosure point and it's something that we can't share with this many people or, you know, so I think just vulnerability, transparency, context and speak normal human language. I don't know what this, the corporate language is, the way people talk. It's so bizarre. It's subtle yeah. madness, isn't it? Um, <laughs> all right. Well, in full disclosure, then I think that's time to, uh, to draw things to a close. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for being here with us, uh, Deirdre. And uh, thank you, Rodney, of course. And thanks to our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please leave us a review and uh, we will see you next week. 